This is Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. And now, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hi, welcome back to Lost or Found. So glad you're joining us. On today's show, we have psychiatrist Dr. Anna Lemke, the author of Dopamine Nation, a super amazing book as we contemplate pleasure and pain. She describes that we live in a time of indulgence with unparalleled access to high reward, high dopamine stimuli. Dr. Lemke is highly interesting and informative, and she may also make you wonder if your smartphone is the modern day hypodermic needle delivering dopamine to you at all times of the day. I know it's scary to view it in this way, but addiction to anything can happen to all of us. And it's important to understand compulsive overconsumption as it affects our living. One of the points that Dr. Lemke brought up in her book, as well as the interview, is radical honesty. The importance of telling the truth even when it's painful. Telling the truth can improve our lives, is fundamental to recovery, and as she says, important for living a more balanced life in our reward-saturated ecosystem. It's kind of overwhelming when you think about it, not covering up. But when we don't lie, we don't need to feel so guilty and afraid. Dr. Lemke writes, that with radical honesty, it promotes awareness of our actions. It fosters intimate human connections. And it holds us accountable, not just to our present, but also to our future selves. I really love that description. Radical honesty. I think about this because the other day, my friend told me that she made a very small but major and very costly mistake at work. Because of this mistake, she had to skip her family vacation to work on this issue that arose. And she was telling me that for the first time, she shared it with her son, that she had made a mistake at work. Up until then, her son had thought his father and mother made no mistakes. They had been on a faraway pedestal of perfection in his young mind. I can understand that mindset because I believe I grew up similarly. I was riddled with self-doubt, as I believed my parents didn't have any humanly issues. Which brings me to my kid's story. A few weeks ago, my boy was pitching in his majors game. It was starting to fall apart, to fall apart further. He came in when the bases were loaded, was somehow able to come out of that inning with one scored run. And it was in the next and last inning where it not only felt intolerably long and painful, but really was intolerably long and painful. Poor William, for the first time in his career, he fell apart on the pitcher's mound. I can't even relay to you what happened in baseball language, but in my mostly ignorant observation, 
I knew that my kid was falling apart. He was becoming unnerved. There were many runs scored, perhaps some missed plays, such that the other team became more and more secure in their win. He became frazzled, was unraveling, and the poor guy was crying for the first time on the mound. And he asked his coach to be taken out. I felt badly for him. He was a mess when the game ended. It was one of the first times that things weren't easy. It was legitimately a hard game. The other team was great. And he fell apart, but so did his team. And that evening, we started to talk about failure, or when things don't go as we wish. It's undoubtedly a good experience for him, even if it really sucks. Learning how he's going to handle these situations, how he's going to play, how he wishes to play, or just being able to return. William asked us, the parents, if we failed at anything. I initially thought that it was a rhetorical question. To me, it's always been so obvious that I failed doing many things. But I remembered that he may see us differently. My son wanted to know the specifics of our failures, like the list, the what and the when. Ouch. So my husband went through his, including his 13%. The 13 out of 100, he got on his first computer science exam at MIT. Even to this day, it's one of the worst scores I've ever seen. When we were dating, my husband framed this exam book with 13% circled on the front. Then William wanted me to go through my failures as he and his sister were sitting at the kitchen table. Okay, here goes. Ouch. Well, you know when mom quit her job because she really hated it? Well, I still have feelings of feeling like a failure for not being able to just do it and continue that path even if I hated it. These feelings occur less than before, but sometimes I still feel like a failure for choosing an unconventional path. But I've decided to learn about myself. Okay, you want another example? Sure. In college, I had decided I was going to be pre-med and took an intro to cellular biology class. I failed my first midterm test, scoring a 65%. I tried to study really hard and do better on the next midterm. And on the second midterm, my exam score was again 65%. I was going to have to give up the pre-med path if I couldn't pass this intro to biology class. Then I worked my ass off, went to office hours, studied on weekends, asked for a biology tutor, and by some miracle, I ended up with a B in the class. I was never happier in my life to receive a B. Okay, another one? Sure. I was taking the MCAT, which is the exam needed to get into medical school, and had studied so hard for it, like months. And anyway, I took the exam, 
felt so unsure and panicked after taking the whole six-hour test that I canceled my scores and walked out of the room at the end. I canceled the whole exam that I had just taken so that there was no record of it. I waited for your dad to pick me up as I cried alone on a bench outside. Not scoring that test delayed my application to medical school, and I had to study another many months to retake that exam. I honestly thought my life was over then, but it was not. Our stories comforted him. It may sound a little sadistic, but he liked hearing that we failed too. William likes for me to randomly tell him the test story to my chagrin. While I cringed at first, as I retell myself and him that story, even though it's embarrassing, I'm also proud of myself. Because the truth is not that I failed, but the moral of that story is that I tried again despite difficult odds. I worked even harder and I did it. I don't think our kids respect us less with our mistakes. My kids understand we make mistakes as parents. I don't want them to aim for perfection. My hope for them is that they always try and don't give up when bad things happen. And if they don't understand something, they can hopefully bring it up with us so that we can put our four heads together for a discussion on what may be the right answer for that particular situation. And truthfully, it's easier when you don't cover up. And like Dr. Lemke writes in her book, with radical honesty, it promotes awareness of our actions. It fosters intimate human connections. And it holds us accountable, not just to our present, but also to our future selves. Love that. And on to today's interview. Dr. Lemke is a medical director of Stanford Addiction Medicine, program director for the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship, and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. A clinician scholar, she has published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, book chapters, and commentaries in prestigious medical journals such as the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA. She is also the author of Drug Dealer, MD, and Dopamine Nation, a book that shows that the secret to finding balance is combining the science of desire with the wisdom of recovery. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Lemke. I'm really honored. Oh, my goodness. I'm honored, too. Thanks for inviting me. And I really enjoyed reading your book. I think it's so poignant and relevant to our times. And I really love how, you know, you write simply because your message is so clear and doctors tend to write very complicated. So I found that really wonderful, too. Well, thank you. Um, I was really trying hard to um, express the ideas with, with as much clarity as I could um, just because I also enjoy reading books that are clear to me. And so I, I wanted to do that for my reader. But I, I appreciate your saying that. Wonderful. 
And, you know, I was really profoundly affected by your book and I really loved it. You described that we live in a world now where everything has become overwhelmingly abundant. Drugs, food, social media, gambling, texting, video games, where pleasure is saturated, the focus is consumption. And you write that the relentless pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain actually leads to pain. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, it's very, really, it's what I'm trying to highlight is that we have changed our ecosystem. And for the first time in human history, we now have everything we need to survive and much, much more. And that even, you know, intoxicants that have been around for centuries, like alcohol and opioids and cannabis, are today much more um, abundant, much more potent. Uh, we have all kinds of new delivery mechanisms. We have uh, social media platforms that build communities ar around, you know, drug use, such that it's become so much easier to get addicted, both to traditional drugs. And then, of course, we have drugs that didn't even exist before, like video games, online gambling, online pornography, social media, online shopping. All of these things, you know, basically take what was originally a healthy and adaptive behavior and have turned them into something that's a potential source of addiction. So it's it's become a real, really the modern plague. I really find what you say so fascinating because we have those things which are very addictive, but even the act of overconsumption is addictive as well. And you describe it so beautifully in your book. And you, when you're talking about one of your patients, you wrote, we are all of a sort engaged with our own masturbation machines. Yeah, so that's the opening chapter, and it is a little bit bold, um, and I, I use that because, I, as you know, I talk about a patient with a severe pornography and compulsive masturbation addiction who literally built a masturbation machine, um, you know, in his process of getting addicted, and what I was trying to do was, on the one hand, you know, that we we hear something like that, and it's, it's kind of horrifying, right, that somebody would would get or real yeah you know <laughs> but really you know when you think about it our our smartphones right and our devices are not that different right i mean the ways that we we now use those devices to meet our own basic needs our need for human attachment uh, our need for sex our need for knowledge um you know our our need for the basic goods that we need to survive um, our need for entertainment, our need to learn. Really, we're all now kind of meeting our own needs and as a result, dividing from each other. And this is really concerning to me. We have more people in the United States living alone than at any other point in history. And I think you know, part of what accelerates that process is that we have these devices that entertain us, soothe us, accompany us, and so allow for people to live in this isolation. You could say on the one hand, well, isn't that great that people who, you know, by, because of forces beyond their control are living in isolation, at least they can make contact to other humans. That's true. But on the other hand, I think that we would be much less likely to find ourselves living alone if we didn't have these devices, because we would have to go out and meet people and build communities and rely on each other. And, and this is, you know, this is my worry. It's the tension between the good and the bad of this technology. 
with with my concerns really being focused on well, what you know, what are the dark sides here? I think what you say is so beautiful because I think under the guise of being socially acceptable, it doesn't really fulfill any of our like survival needs. Like we need each other to survive. We need to walk to continue to survive. And I think that's not what's happening. Right, exactly. I mean, we're, we're physiologically wired to, to move our bodies, you know, to walk tens of kilometers per day. We are social creatures. We're, we're evolutionarily designed to live in tribes, to depend on and need each other, um, to work together to meet our, you know, collective needs. And yeah, we have now a society where we've made it, um, you know, everything so easy to get uh, that we've really facilitated this fracturing of humans one from another who are remaining connected because of the technology, but, you know, have we facilitated something that in the long run is really not going to meet meet our needs? And I think the ways in which we're seeing that it's not meeting our needs is that where we are seeing rising rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, and addiction, you know, and you would think, what a paradox, right? Now we have everything we ever needed and then some, why aren't we happy? Uh, and why are we getting less happy? And I think the re- really the answer is because we're not wired for this kind of world. We're wired for a world that requires us to strive and work and endure pain. And we're wired for a world of scarce rewards that we have to work for. And we're really, most importantly, wired to connect. And this kind of fracturing uh, you know, and splintering of humans is, is really um, you know, not healthy. I find what you say so beautiful, and I love how you even mentioned in your book Kent Dunnington in your um in your book how persons with severe addictions are among those contemporary prophets that we ignore to our own demise, for they show us who we truly are. What does this mean to you? And I think it's such a powerful uh, <laughs> quote. But. So yes, that's a great. A great quote by Kent that you know, he was sort of in some ways you know one of the inspirations for me to write this book because I am convinced that people in recovery from severe addictions are modern day prophets for the rest of us. They, because of their addiction, have had to learn to abstain or moderate their consumption in a world of overwhelming um, overabundance as a matter of survival. Right? It's not optional for them. They've had to figure it out in order to live. Um, and the rest of us can really look to them um, and what the what is the wisdom that they've acquired around how to live with an addiction in an addictogenic world. And there's so much wisdom there. Um, you know, as I talk about in the book, just the simple wisdom of how to abstain, the wisdom of how to create self-binding strategies, that is to say, literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice, so that we can press the pause button between desire and consumption. Um, the wisdom of radical honesty, why it's important to tell the truth and what's the relationship between telling the truth and dopamine surges and intimacy and connection. Uh, the wisdom about uh, shame and the role that it plays in our life, in our lives and how shame can be good and shame can be bad and what's the difference between what I call pro-social shame and malignant or destructive shame. I think that's so profound because I really do agree with you. I think their message holds like a very important, um, I think their journey holds a very important message for us. It's kind of like the way I think of it, like someone who's literally been to hell and back or someone who's 
trying to constantly prevent from going to hell. I think someone who's gone there, their journey has such a more profound message for all of us that we can all learn from the dangers. Yeah, Yeah, I love how you phrase that because it it really shows me that you appreciate that, that the disease of addiction is not about like hedonic pleasure seeking. On the face of it, it may appear that way, that people just want to get their pleasure, but really it's just a world of pain. Um, And that when people become addicted, they're not even seeking pleasure anymore. They're just trying to feel normal and not not be in in terrible pain. And that it's really an awful disease. But people can and do get into recovery. There are millions of people all over the world who are living in, you know, sustained recovery from severe addiction and having very wonderful, thriving lives and contributing in really important and meaningful ways to the community. So there's an enormous amount of wisdom there. A lot of it's captured by the 12 steps and by Alcoholics Anonymous and other mutual health groups, um, not just you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. There's also Smart Recovery. Um, there's also uh, various sort of Dharma Recovery. Um, there's you know, uh, lots of good mutual health wisdom out there. Do you think many of us are running away from pain? There's no doubt in my mind that we are because we're wired to do that. So we're wired over millions of years of evolution to avoid pain and to approach positive, reinforcing, pleasurable things, because that is what has allowed us to survive in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. The problem is that now we live in a very safe world. I mean, our our main predator is actually ourselves, other human beings. Um, it's like the worst kind of predator, <laughs> right? Um, we're, we're we're largely insulated from physically painful experiences. We've eradicated or limited um, many disease states. So you know we we natu- we've gotten very good at running away from pain to the point where um, technology and innovation and science has allowed us to create this world where it's now you know uncommon, for example for a woman to have uh, a, a lot of pain in childbirth, at least in modern nations. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's uncommon for people to lose a child. Um, you know, obviously it still happens, but, um, but it's less common. People are living longer than ever. You know, for most of human history, people live till about age 30. Now the average lifespan all over the world is about um, age 80, and we have more people living to 100 and over than ever before in human history. So we have this incredible ability to um, you know, run away from pain and approach pleasure, but we've gone too far. You know, we've now reached this tipping point, which really then does beg the question, you know, how do we live in this world? It's not that people, we can celebrate these achievements, but I think we have to recognize that the relentless pursuit of pleasure um, and being experienced to, you know, not and not having any kind of physical pain actually is going to reset our physiology and ultimately put us into this addiction spiral where no matter how much pleasure we pursue, we don't experience pleasure and we become then very sensitive to even the merest slight. Yeah, I really agree because I think, you know, I think pain has an important message for us, you know. And I think like in the world of avoiding pain or focusing on the the easy fixes, there's no such thing. And I think in your book, you did also describe that too much pleasure will cause pain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's important to be honest about it. It is. And also to appreciate that we reflexively 
seek to get pleasure and avoid pain. We do it reflexively. It's, it's natural. It's human. But because we've changed the world to be a world of overwhelming overabundance, we now need to inhibit that reflex and actually avoid uh, pleasures that are too potent um, or avoid them doing them too often. And we need to actually turn toward pain and intentionally invite it into our lives in the form of exercise, ice cold water baths, other mind body work, yoga, martial arts, or just infinite things. Also psychological struggles. You know, when we, when we do something that's painful intentionally to say to ourselves, that's actually, you know, that's good for me to have to tolerate that anxiety or tolerate that dysphoria to recognize that, that change is the nature of the universe and that nothing lasts forever, not even my suffering and that this too shall pass. Um, all of that is, is, I think, kind of messages that are old that we need to bring back, you know, in a new way. And, and what I try to emphasize is that they're very consistent with new neuroscience, the new neuroscientific findings, this idea that really are, we're wired for pain, um, wired for to have a certain amount of pain and that it's healthy and good for us. It actually upregulates, you know, our own healing responses. It makes more dopamine. It makes more serotonin, makes more norepinephrine, as opposed to the cultural narrative that has been dominant for the past 30, 50 years, which is pain is bad for you. You know, avoid if you experience pain, you'll have, you know, trauma, and then that trauma will sort of mess you up for your whole life. And really, um, you know, that's for the vast majority of cases, not really true. In fact, you know, hardship and challenge and some degree of, um, let's say, trauma can make us more resilient, can become a touchstone for our resilience as we face future challenges and say to ourselves, well, I made it through that. I, I can make it through this. I can make it through anything. It could be part of our resiliency. That's right. Do you feel like there should be like a time limit for the pain? Because, you know, too much of something fun or good is in the end too much. Do you feel like with pain, it's the same thing? Like, you know, if we dwell in it too much, you know, it's important to honor those feelings, but could there be a too much as well? Oh, for sure. So it's, it's possible to get addicted to pain. And sometimes, I mean, people, do that. Like in some ways you can get addicted to your own anxiety and sort of that's your happy place to just be constantly worrying about something. And you have this amorphous ball of anxiety looking for something to land on. That's certainly, you know, a struggle that I have. And it's hard to say how pain is pleasurable, you know, how anxiety, how could that be pleasurable? But there's a way in which something painful becomes comfortable because we know it and we'd rather choose the pain we know than, you know, venture forth and try something new. Um, and obviously, you know, any pain that is too potent, like cutting on ourselves, which does relief, release endogenous endorphins or our own opioids, that's not the kind of healthy pain that I'm talking about. That's we're not, not encouraging that. You know, too much exercise is not good, right? People can get overtraining syndrome. They can actually get exercise addiction. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is mild to moderate doses of pain that you do on purpose, both physical and psychological, because we know that we're wired for that and that will reset our reward pathways and just allow us to be more physiologically in balance with our bodies and with nature. I think that's very uh, meaningful. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, I really loved how you mentioned honesty. Like it almost begins with how we talk to our children. And you mentioned that in your book. 
yeah, how we talk to our children, how we talk to ourselves. So the interesting thing about addiction or really anywhere you are in that spectrum of compulsive overuse, we're very good at being in denial about it. So we have a lot of sort of vivid memory for the pleasure itself, but we don't have much memory for the negative consequences. And we want to repeat that pleasure. So we're often minimizing to ourselves exactly what we're doing, how much of it, what the consequences are. So what radical honesty does is that it um, it forces us to put into words what we're doing, you know, how we're spending our time, what we're consuming. And then that brings it into relief and makes allows us to see it in a way that we really often can't see it when we're just living with that sort of split mind of denial or the double life. So that's why telling a psychotherapist or telling a friend or telling a family member or telling your children, you know, in an honest way, um, you know, what, what you're doing gives us that aha moment of insight. Oh, wow, I really am doing that. And once we can really see it, then often we, we, we realize that that's not what we want to be doing. And then that creates the motivation to change those behaviors. I really find that to be so true because, you know, there's so much focus on like protecting our children from adversity. But, you know, I really try to show my children that, you know, fighting is normal. You know, like I really don't want them to have this over like, uh, like perfection, you know, ideal of a marriage because marriage really is to work things out. And I feel like too much protection from adversity, like you wrote, is not necessarily a good thing either. Yeah. So I think that that's a, that's a really interesting example because I think it's, it's, we have to be thoughtful um, about what we model for our kids. Right. And so I think when we model for our kids that we are highly flawed creatures too, that we struggle, um, you know, that, that we occasionally lie and then have to go back and apologize. Um, so, but, but what we want to do is we want to model for them our struggle and also how we come through it, you know, in a healthy and adaptive way. So when it comes to, let's say, arguing that they might observe, what we really want them to see, if they're going to see arguing, they also want to see that mom and dad can come through the other side and come to some sort of understanding or compromise. And that there's, you can, you know, you can be in conflict and yet still love one another. And then ultimately through your discussion and through kindness and empathy and compassion, find a way through. What, what I think would be traumatic for kids is a kind of dysregulated parents who are screaming at each other and who don't ever get to that place you know, of resolution. So we want to teach our kids how, to, how, when in the moment when I'm upset, how do I emotionally regulate myself? Do I, do I reach for a beer? You know, do I, do, do I start screaming at people or do I take a moment, you know, do I, do I do some breath work? Do I go on a walk? Do I express my feelings in words? It's really, so it's really how, what we model for how we cope. That is really the difference. But I agree with you. Um, the key is also not to pretend like we're perfect and don't have any problems. That, that's not going to help them because they're going to grow up and they're going to be like, well, I, I have a lot of problems and my, my mom never has any problems. So <laughs> And I don't even then feel comfortable sharing my problems because she seems like she's got it all together. It's like, no, no, not at all. Right. We always... That's why I'm open about my midlife crisis. <laughs> you write that there's uh, you write that there's a paradox that exists <laughs> that hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure leads to anhedonia, which is the inability to enjoy pleasure of any kind. Is there a point when drugs stop working then? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's people usually start using drugs for one of two reasons to have fun or to solve a problem. And they go back to it because it works, right? It's fun or it solves their problem. Their problem may be anxiety, depression, loneliness, boredom, you know, you name it. Um, but inevitably, because the brain has a overwhelming drive toward what we call homeostasis, or basically adapting to whatever the drug is and going back to its physiologic baseline, eventually that drug will stop working. And then that person will have a new problem because now they'll be needing to continue to use the drug, not to solve the initial problem, but just to get back to baseline. And that's the insidious nature of addictive substances and behaviors, which is why in the long run, they don't work and it's not a good way to get your dopamine. I really like how candid you are in your book about your clinical experiences because I really think it helps to hone in the message, you know. And if recovery begins with abstinence, you mentioned that you've seen people with severe addiction slip right back into compulsive use with a single exposure after years of abstinence. How does one maintain the abstinence? Right. So, um, you know, it, it is true that some people have severe addictions such that they really have to abstain for life. And that when they try to go back to using in moderation, they're not able to. It immediately plummets them back into the worst stages of their use. So that's, that's, a, that's of course, devastating for people to realize that about themselves. But um, a healthy pathway is first recognition. Like, well, you know, these people around me, they can use alcohol or whatever the drug is in moderation. And I can't. I'm just not that person. And so some, you know, self-compassion, you know, stages of grief, um, that's a really important first step. Just insight. Yeah. Insight, recognizing where we are, you know, in the spectrum of addictive or compulsive overuse. And then I think the really key thing is what I, what I talk about is in terms of self-finding strategies, which is creating these barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice. They can be both literal barriers, like not having the drug in the house, not hanging out with people who use the drug, uh, and also metacognitive strategies used to try to, you know, limit our exposure, not just to the drug, but also triggers for the drug, because the trigger alone can cause an increase in dopamine, which then sets us up for that craving. So really what, what people with a severe addiction need to do is really create a world within a world. So they're not constantly being triggered and that you can do that with this kind of self-finding strategies and just acknowledging it up front and saying, yeah, I, I can't go to that party. You know, I can't hang out with those people. Um, I can't use this product because although that's not my addiction, when I use that product, it leads me to my addiction and just, you know, figuring out what those things are and then creating, you know, a world that promotes abstinence if abstinence is the goal. And, and sort of, you know, being okay with that and like even sort of celebrating that and saying, you know, I'm, this is how I'm, I'm best designed to go through the world. And, you know, as you're talking about radical honesty, just being open about it. It's like, yeah, I, I, I can't eat, I can't eat at, you know, 7 p.m. Maybe everybody else can eat at 7 p.m., but I eat at 7 p.m. I'm, di I'm disinhibited and I'll have a gallon of ice cream. Um, so I need to stop eating at 5 p.m. And that's part of what my self-finding strategy is that I have some hard time limits on when I eat or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I think what you say is so true. I think understanding the impact of that addiction on our lives, because, you know, some people maybe, you know, we can't stop the overconsumption because it's so, so available. Do you feel like there's some others who can return to, you know, 
So with those with addiction in their past, can they return to their drug of choice in a controlled way? Yeah, so this is a pretty new idea in the field of addiction medicine. This question, you know, can some people who have met criteria for addiction actually, after a period of absence, return to using in moderation? We used to say no. And of course, the Alcoholics Anonymous ethos was that that could never be. But there are data showing that some people with alcohol addiction can, after a sustained period of abstinence, return to using alcohol in moderation. I have seen that in my own practice. People have been able to do that. But I can tell you it's the minority. So the most people, once they've developed a severe addiction, they will go repeatedly back to trying to use in moderation and just find that after, after a while, they can't maintain moderation. They eventually slip into addictive use or very interestingly, they say, well, I can maintain it, but boy, is it a lot of work, right? It's so much work that it's actually like abstinence is easier. I'd rather just at some point abstain. So uh, the, most people you know, with more severe addictions will ultimately end up uh, recognizing that abstinence is not just the better goal for them, but in some ways, the easier goal for them. That's interesting. I could see that. Now, uh, now, you take something like food addiction or like device, digital device addiction, it gets harder because people can't abstain from food. You need to eat, you know, or sex addiction. We generally think sex, you know, certain types of sex or healthy sex is part of a healthy life. Or these devices are so integrated into our lives, we can't ask people to never be on their devices. That's not practical or feasible. So this question of moderation does become really important. How, how do we moderate? And again, what I talk about in the book is using a lot of self-finding strategies, as well as this radical honesty and pro-social shame idea to help us, um, you know, maintain moderation if that's our goal. Like maintaining certain hour of windows of hours, right? Or I knew an alcoholic who lived across the street who would only drink after 4 p.m., but then, you know. Yeah, exactly. So so many different strategies. You can use time as a self-finding construct, certain times of the day, certain days of the week, maybe only on holidays, maybe only after you finish a certain goal. Um, you can use like actual literal physical barriers where you keep your alcohol locked up. You give the key to somebody else um, or you keep it in the house. So you're only using on special occasions with friends. Then you have to make sure you're not having too many special occasions. Um, I know people go to before they go to hotel rooms, they have the hotel staff remove the, the mini bar. Sometimes they remove the mini bar and the television because they know they use pornography. Mm -hmm. They go so all kinds of things like that. Um, you know, that really, you know, we even have medicines now that can create self-binding at the molecular level. You know, that can block certain receptors or modulate certain neurotransmitters such that the drug itself isn't so reinforcing when people use it, or maybe when they use it, they get really sick. So that it functions as a deterrent and then their mind rewires around it. Oh, I get sick when I use that substance, you know, and then they don't want it as much. So mm -hmm. all kinds of strategies that, that you know, we, we can use to give ourselves a little bit of a nudge to help us. But I think what you did also describe, it seems like it's also a constant struggle. You know, the other lurking question is, when is it enough? Yeah, you know? right. Well, sure. I mean, you know, somebody who doesn't start drinking till 4 p.m., but then does, does they go till four in the morning, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so ju just because you, you know, implement self-finding strategies, it's no guarantee that they're going to work. And in fact, sometimes the, the barrier can be an invitation uh, to use as we, you know, for people with severe addiction who then like part of the drug is thinking about how to get it right, how to overcome the barrier and go around the locked door and 
can get the drug. So, um, yeah, it, it is a struggle. And I would say, you know, in this world of overwhelming overabundance, where even healthy and adaptive behaviors like human connection have been drugified, we're all vulnerable to the problem of addiction. I would say this is not something that those people over there with addiction are struggling with, as I talk about in my book. This is something that really we're all struggling with now. Are the change are the brain changes due to addiction irreversible? So based on animal studies and also um, you know, human clinical experience, there probably are some irreversible brain changes that occur in the brain as a result of addiction, areas of the brain that are permanently changed or, or if you want to call it permanently damaged as a result of the addiction. And that recovery is probably the process of rerouting around those damaged areas and building new neural networks. And we see evidence for that uh, for both in animal studies and also the ways in which in humans, even after decades of sobriety from their drug of choice, we see people when they're exposed to their drug, they're immediately plunged back into their addiction with no gradual, you know, a warm up. Um, it's as if they're right back where they were. Uh, and we, you know, we just heard that so many times and seen that clinically over decades that we suspect there's some kind of permanent latent brain change that gets reawakened when people are re-exposed to their drug or to a similar drug. There's this phenomenon of cross addiction too. Interesting. You know, I really loved um, your example of the teenage patient that you had who was addicted to cannabis. And especially in California, I guess it's really reflective of all of U.S. Everyone seems to use real cannabis, you know, pretty, you know, in a relaxed way. But she said she smoked because of anxiety. But you talked about how it can also contribute to her anxiety, you know, changing our brain's baseline. I thought that was really interesting, too, considering nothing is really non-toxic, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the very key point. I have a lot of patients who come in wanting help for insomnia, anxiety, depression, inattention, lots of different psychiatric problems. And when I discover that they're using an intoxicant all day, every day, whether it's video games or cannabis or anything else you might name, one of my first interventions is to actually have them abstain from that drug for 30 days. Why 30 days? Because that's about the average time it takes to reset reward pathways. Because what's often happened is that although that person might have initially started to use their drug of choice to medicate their psychiatric problem, like the, the young woman in the book who uses cannabis to medicate her anxiety, the brain adapts to the presence of that drug, not just bringing dopamine levels to baseline, but actually below baseline so that she ultimately ends up in a dopamine deficit state where she's experiencing subthreshold withdrawal every day. And the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. So basically she's, you know, what happens, we end up ch chasing our tail where the cannabis, which initially may work effectively to help anxiety, becomes the thing that's causing the anxiety because the brain adapts to it, not just to baseline, but below baseline. And then people are using not to feel good, but actually just to feel normal or to feel anything at all, um, which is also why they need more and more over time to get the same effect and more potent forms. So this initial intervention of abstaining from cannabis for 30 days, first people go into withdrawal, right? And they feel worse, but I always warn them, you're going to feel worse before you feel better. And the feeling worse is not how you'll be left. 
it's not like your life without cannabis, you're in withdrawal. And so it's gonna, that shows you that the cannabis has changed your brain. But if you can just wait till week three and four, what'll happen is you'll start to make more of your own dopamine, you'll restore homeostasis, and then you'll find that you're actually less anxious than when you were smoking cannabis, that you've actually restored reward pathways. And about 80% of my patients will come back after a month of abstinence from their drug of choice and endorse feeling a whole lot better without my having had to prescribe any medicine or do any kind of specialized type of of psychotherapy, except for the behavioral intervention to change their consumption. And if they come back and they're not feeling better, that's also really useful information, right? Because it tells me, okay, it's not primarily the cannabis. There's something else going on here. Or, you know, very often it's a combination, right? The person does have an anxiety disorder and the anxiety and the cannabis, which initially helped, is now making things worse. So we got to get them off the daily cannabis, reset reward pathways, getting them feeling a little bit better, maybe not all the way better. And then maybe we need to prescribe a little bit of an antidepressant or do some exposure therapy or something like that to then work on the anxiety. I think that's a really great idea, the idea of the brain reset in a way, because I think it's only after you go through all that, you know, even though it's so painful, do you kind of get a glimpse of who you are again? And I think with knowing who you are again or feeling it, I think that allows for more insight about what's going on. Yeah, this is really a key point that when we're chasing dopamine, we lose the ability to see true positive effect and our drug can start having negative consequences in our life, which is really the the sine qua non of addiction. But we don't see those consequences, right? All we know is in the instant that we use, we feel better. We have an escape. We numb ourselves. We we get out of our heads. Meanwhile, our lives are falling apart as a consequence uh, of our drug, or maybe just subtle consequences, but we don't see it. So that's why this dopamine fast and this absence trial is really important, because not only do we reset reward pathways and be able to enjoy other more modest rewards, but we really get to see true cause and effect. I'll have patients who come in after a month of not using, and then they'll look back at their using self and they'll be like, who, who is that person? Like, I don't even recognize that person who put so many resources toward using their drug. It's, it seems like surreal to me now. And I've just heard that so many times. It really speaks to, again, the ways in which uh, it's insidious and we're blind to that insidious deterioration that occurs, you know, as we become addicted. Yeah. I like the struggle still remains, but I think when you have better view, better feeling, better insight, can you decide like how you want to live for the you know rest of your life? And maybe it's a constant struggle. Right, of course. I mean, I think it is a constant struggle for all of us, but at least you have now a little glimmer of what you're aiming for too. Mm-hmm. You can feel a little bit better. You're the hope of yourself. Yeah, that's right. The hope of yourself. Yeah. Um, do you think we can use medication to restore a level of balance, like Suboxone for opioid use, antabuse for alcohol addiction? Yeah. So, so uh, you know, Suboxone or buprenorphine is an opioid used to treat opioid addiction. And um, a lot of times, you know, I think people naturally have sort of a uh, kind of, they think, well, that doesn't make any sense. But if you think about the way that the brain adapts to opioids in opioid addiction over time, um, that, that what the, the opioid agonist therapy or the buprenorphine suboxone is doing is actually allowing us to reset reward pathways back to baseline so that people don't have to put all of their, you know, 
resources, mm -hmm. mental and physical, into trying to withstand uh, the craving. And instead, they can then invest back into their lives, back into their recovery. And yes, they'll be on an opioid, um, but you know, in many instances, it's absolutely life-saving. Do you feel like it's a good long-term answer? It depends on the person. The data say for some people, it is the right long-term response, that without that, they would relapse um, and you know, potentially have terrible consequences. For other people, I think it can be a stabilizing a drug. And then once they kind of get their lives together and get other alternative coping strategies, have got their family back, have dealt with their legal issues, whatever it is, then I think a slow and gradual taper off is indicated um, to show that. And slow is important because that allows the brain to readapt to the absence of opioids, but do it slowly. You don't want an abrupt cessation. That's a huge stressor on the brain. Um, but I think, you know, a gradual taper over time with other robust recovery practices is the way to go. What percentage of patients require the medications? Well, the data show that for people who respond well to opioid agonist therapy, like mm -hmm. morphine and methadone maintenance, that the, the data show, you know, that uh, for those who stop it, about 80% of them will relapse. Mm -hmm. So that, that tells us that, you know, theoretically, about 80% of folks need to stay on it um, for the long haul. But not everybody responds well to that type of medication. Not everybody does well on that. Some people start to misuse it um, themselves or get kind of, you know, use it in the wrong way, or it just doesn't work for them. And so for those folks, we need to look for a different strategy. Dr. Lemke, thank you for your profound contribution to the world. And I really enjoyed having you here on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. My goodness. You're very welcome. Thanks for your gratitude. And I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Dr. Lemke. Bye. Thanks for listening to Lost or Found. Please subscribe and follow Dr. Michelle Choi on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. For more information, visit our website, drlostorfound.com.